You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. When you were sitting in that room with all the writers for The Simpsons, did you say like, oh my gosh, this is the dream come true? <laughs> no. I, I got hired at The Simpsons because nobody else wanted the job. And it was... You know, a beloved cult classic. It was also the lowest rated show on TV. And Sam Simon called me. I said, you want to work on The Simpsons? I go, why are you calling me? I don't know you. And he says, everyone else has turned me down. It seemed not only like a surefire loser of a show, but actual career poison. So I took The Simpsons job. I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. And it was like any summer job. It's like, well, I won't be doing this forever, so... Let's just have some fun. And then maybe that's the secret of the show. You know, we said, no one's going to watch it. Let's just make this for us. Well, like you say, I think that's part of its charm. Because you guys wrote those shows just to make yourselves laugh. It's this whole idea of the process was more important than the outcome. Yes. Yeah. 
I am so happy Mike Reese is here. Mike Reese, if you don't know his name, you certainly know his work very well. He's been involved with The Simpsons for most of its 30 years. Are they on their 30th season now? Our 30th year begins in September. Yeah, because uh, Nancy Cartwright, who does the voice of Bart, was here right when the 29th season was was starting. You were the showrunner in the in two of the first four years. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, seasons three and four. Yeah, and then um, you you wrote tons of episodes. You've produced hundreds of episodes. You're a consulting producer now for them and 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 work on, on stuff with them. You've also do- worked on a ton of movies. You've written 17 children's books. You do- you've written a play that broke box office records. In Connecticut. In Connecticut, <laughs> but still a lot of... Yeah, it's a place. I've, se- I've gone to Connecticut to see a play even. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You also wrote, amazingly, for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yes, I'm that old. I was, he was very old, and I was very young, and we crossed paths for a couple of years. Yeah, I feel like not many people still working could say, oh, yeah, I wrote for Johnny Carson. It was something, yeah. It's still, you know, if it wasn't for The Simpsons, I think I could dine out on Johnny Carson for a while still. And you probably would have been ended up, well, I mean, we'll talk about The Simpsons. We'll talk about your book. We'll talk, I just want to mention, too, you're on its Gary Shandling show, which must have been an amazing education in comedy. Yes, it was. And you also wrote uh, for one of my favorites back in the day, not necessarily the news. Oh, good. You know, it's getting a little attention now. Because it was like the first daily show. Yes. I, you know, I wrote about it for the book, and they just said, no one knows what you're talking about. It got cut out. But it's an amazing incubator, that show, where I think I think 17 Simpsons writers got their start on that show. They had a really good eye for talent and taking a risk on writers right out of college. Well, it feel, it, it reminds me always there are certain hotspots in every industry where that hotspot becomes sort of the incubator of talent. So like, let's say in Silicon Valley, I'll take a completely different industry, PayPal has, creates the so-called PayPal mafia. You know, it's always yeah. called a mafia at the end of that. Like you have the Harvard mafia because you were at the Harvard Lampoon, which then went all, everybody went to Hollywood. But but it seems like like PayPal spread out to form all these other companies. Even the Simpsons, a lot of people went on to do great shows and the most notably Conan O'Brien. Conan was, uh, yeah, there was no holding him back. Like, could you see day one, oh my gosh, this guy's a phenomenon? I knew it, you know, I I was out of college. I was working at National Lampoon in New York, and I got a call from Harvard Lampoon in Boston, and somebody said, we got a kid here I think you should see. And, I mean, it was just to observe him, you know? And I got a train and went to Boston to meet Conan O'Brien, a 19-year-old kid who was just fully formed, the guy you've been seeing on TV for 25 years. He was just insanely funny and, you know, kind of antic and manic, uh, but also just a lovely guy and so smart. I mean, you know, people can just see a couple of levels of the guy, but he's just a very erudite guy on top of all of that. And that was it. So I saw him there and then, uh, whatever, three years later, I I helped get him his first job, I think, at Not Necessarily the News. And then a few years later at The Simpsons, we had had the same core writers for four years, and then people were starting to leave. And we go, how do we replace somebody, you know, this slot? How do we fit someone into this team? And we we brought in Conan, and he just took over his first day. No shyness. 
He just took over the show, and it became the Conan show for the next couple of years. Like he wrote all, uh, I mean, his first pitch, right, became an episode. Yes, he came, in, he came in for a, a story retreat. This is where we figure out the stories that we're going to write about all the next year. And everyone comes in with a little five-minute presentation. And, you, you know, if you didn't sell any stories, you were in a little bit of trouble. Uh, you had nothing to do for the next year. Yeah, and uh, sometimes... You know, all you hoped to do was sell one, but maybe on a great day you could sell two. And Conan, you know, it was like his first week on the job, sold three episodes. They were all great. One of them was the monorail show. And Al Jean and I were so clueless. We're running the show, and we said, pitch that one last because we don't think James L. Brooks is going to go for it. It's too weird. And it's arguably, it's my favorite episode ever. It was just so great. I mean, and 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 not to mention... You know how talent got a start, like like Conan at The Simpsons. But you just mentioned James L. Brooks. This is a a classic guy from sitcoms past, Mary Tyler Moore Show. You know, and all the the spinoffs of that. I mean, what was it like? I, I I have a lot of what was it like doing. Yeah, and then I'll get to The Simpsons. But what was it like working with such a co- comedic genius for for decades before? He was. You know, I remember in college, I was watching Taxi. And maybe the best sitcom ever. Yeah. I'm watching the credits go, and I go, hey, this is the same gang of writers all the time. I remember the same names from Mary Tyler Moore, and they would go to match. And I I remember thinking, I would love to be part of a pack of guys like that. And they're working under James L. Brooks. And, you know, here it took about eight years or so. And then suddenly I'm part of that pack. I'm working with those guys, working under Jim. And I was as great as I could have imagined. He's- so even though you had all these great experiences, like you were, had done The Tonight Show with Carson, you worked with Gary Shandling, you worked not necessarily the news, just when you were sitting in that room with, with, with James L. Brooks and all the writers for The Simpsons, what did you, did you say like, oh my gosh, this is the dream come true? No. Because you no, describe I, it in the book like, oh, this might not be bad for... No one knew whether The Simpsons would be good or not. It was Nobody a- knew. No, I mean, I tell the story way too much, but it was... Uh, I got hired at The Simpsons because nobody else wanted the job. I was on a summer break from It's Gary Shandling show, everybody's second favorite Gary Shandling sitcom. And it was very, you know, a beloved cult classic. It was also the lowest rated show on TV. And Sam Simon called me. I was on a three-month break. He said, you want to work on The Simpsons? I go, why are you calling me? I don't know you. And he says, everyone else has turned me down. So I went to work at The Simpsons, and uh, I thought it was just the summer job. And uh, one of our writers is Jay Kogan, and his father was an esteemed comedy writer who had written for Carol Burnett and Johnny Carson. And his father was begging him not to take The Simpsons job. It just... It's weird to put yourself in that mindset, but it just seemed not only like a, a surefire loser of a show, but actual career poison. So I took the Simpsons job. I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. And it was like any summer job where, you you know, when my last summer job had been filing death certificates at John Hancock Insurance. And it was like that. It's like, well, I won't be doing this forever, so let's just have some fun and that was it. And maybe that's the secret of the show was just nobody, you know, we said no one's going to watch it. Let's just make this for us and let's fill it with stuff we never get to see on TV any other way. Well, well, I, I, like you say, I think that's part of its charm. Like this, so, so just to set the context, this was the first primetime animated show 
since the Flintstones, Correct. right? When it came on the air. It was kind of a flagship for this fledgling network, Fox. Yeah. You know, that and Married with Children, you know, were sort of like the first known shows that really catapulted Fox, I think. And, uh, you know, and it was sort of a much more, obviously much more adult than the Flintstones. And you make the astute point that uh, kids like the cartoonish aspect, but then they could watch with their parents who get the more blue aspect yeah. of the show. Yeah, it was either going to be a show for everybody or nobody whatsoever, you know? It's too smart for kids and not a cartoon for adults. It could I think that was why people thought it just wasn't going to work. But and, that became the formula for almost every kind of cartoon a successful cartoon show after that, including yours. You you created I forgot to mention you created The Critic, yes, which I, I enjoyed by the way. I oh, remember thank that you. when I was waiting for that when that was about to launch, like I was so excited. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then of course, Family Guy and South Park have that both kid style cartoon and adult style humor. So it's, it's a kind of a formula that was replicated. It certainly, and it even goes back the sh- the job I had a couple of jobs right before Simpsons was the show Alf, Alf with the puppet that looked like brown genitalia, and. That was a show, we wrote it purely for adults because we knew it had a puppet in it. Kids were going to watch it regardless. So That's interesting. Yeah, uh, and it, I, nobody goes back and rewatches old elves. But you'll see, we were doing a lot of stuff. There were a lot of pop culture references and a lot of the tricks we used on The Simpsons, we had done there first. I mean, you've you've said a lot repeatedly in, in, in the book and in interviews that you guys were just in the writer's room trying to make yourselves laugh right. rather than focusing too much on the audience or awards. But I keep forgetting bio notes. You've won four Emmys. Um, what, what is, what, what's the process like when you're just trying to make each other laugh? Like what is that, what is a, a day in the early Simpsons or even the now, now Simpsons life look like? It's funny. I, I just, people have been asking me about the first season and I realized how scattered that was. We didn't even have a writer's room. It was, none of us were there at the same time. And again, it was, we worked in a trailer with with terrible shag carpeting and it was very low rent. And we, the scripts, you know, the show became kind of a classic right away. The scripts were really just knocked out very quickly. Almost everyone who wrote those first season episodes had never written a half hour script before. So that's incredible. It just shows you it's something I've learned recently, which is it's not that hard to write TV. You know, there's there's courses everywhere, how to write television, blah, blah, blah. And there's not that much to know. You know, I think if you if you just watched a lot of TV when you were a kid, which I did, you sort of pick it up. You pick it up. And most of most of writing, no matter whether it's a play or a movie or a children's book, all the different things I've done, it just means Make every line good. You know, never get lazy anywhere along the way. But with The Simpsons, too, being a comedy, it's not only make every line good, it's you have to make a lot of those lines funny. Right. And in the rewrite room, once we got to the second year, and the second year looks exactly like the 30th year, the process has been exactly the same, which is it's a bunch of writers sitting around a table. We have a script. Some poor soul has to write the original script, and then we go, all right, line one, anyone got anything funnier? And everyone sits and pitches jokes. If something makes 60% of us laugh, it goes in the script. And then we go line two, 
Line three. So and what's a specific? Like, what's a, what's a, what, what, give me like a first line for an episode that some people pitch and then another first line one. Oh, that's hard to, that's a hard one. I do remember once the phone rings and we need a line. What does Homer say when he picks up the phone? And I was just sitting there. It was like for two hours and I'm going, he says, hello. You know, does everything have to be funny? And, but we're all sitting there pitching. And it's a hard joke to pitch. How do you pick up a phone? Hello. And I think he just said yellow. And that was good enough. And that actually became kind of a running yeah, trademark of him. But uh, that is the process. I mean, a good one to remember is, is certainly when you see an itchy and scratchy cartoon, title card comes on for a second. It's just one second. And that's hours of work. I mean, it's just eight people sitting around. And by now, we've probably done a hundred of those titles so it gets harder every time but we'll just keep sitting there throwing out notions till something perks us up and there's no cheating you know you can't go eh, it's good enough uh, it'll catch you sooner or later when you put in a half-baked joke because because the the half hour or, or sorry the animated format also lends itself to different kinds of joke telling it's not just the characters telling jokes you could you have stuff all happening in the background the foreground Correct. the side ground and so every little thing are you you're trying to fill up every corner with with comedy to, to, to hit it, the many layers that's it's it's the downside i love everything about animation the freedom of it the sort of liberation the best thing about writing you know having come from live action sitcoms is you can insult the characters without insulting the actors. Mm. You know, if Homer Simpson was a human being, some actor playing that part, you couldn't call him fat and ugly every week. The man has feelings. Nobody on Roseanne, that ran for eight years. Nobody ever told Roseanne she was fat. She would insult everyone around her. Nobody would ever lash out at her because she's a human being and it was her show, but... Wow, can we hit Homer? And we hit him with everything we got. Yeah, so so I'm jealous. It must have just been the funniest, funnest job in the world just to sit around telling jokes all day. It's it's insanely pleasant. It's really nice. It's not crazy. You know, every couple of years they send a camera crew to film our writer's room and they think, let's watch the fireworks. And it's just Jews thinking. It's not much different from the writing of the Talmud. It's just Jews deep in thought going, all right, what's a funny line? And then finally someone says something. It's not nonstop kibitzing and that kind of thing. It's just, it's a little bit of hard work. And when the joke comes, it's fun. And there's certainly, it's as great a way to make a living as anything. But, you know, don't walk in and expect, yeah, hell's a poppin'. Now you describe the structure, the the the, the act, the four act structure of a typical episode. Maybe just walk us through that and how important that is for for each episode, or if it's not that important for each episode. Yeah, it's really not that important. I, it was one thing I realized when I had my first sitcom job. I got hired. I you know I worked enough to get a job on a sitcom, and writers would come in to pitch ideas for episodes. Freelance writers. And they go, blah, 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 and this happens. And then the act break is this. And they'd always go, and the act break is this. And I'd been watching my I'd been watching TV my whole life. I go, what is an act break? And I never realized, and I think most TV viewers don't realize something big happens right before the first commercial that makes you hang in there and keep watching after the commercials. I mean, Jim, we all 
you watch if you watch commercial TV, which nobody does anymore. You watch the show, you're there for the half hour. You know, you're not going anywhere, but every show has a planted big moment right before the commercial. And so The Simpsons has these arbitrary, we have three acts. For, and I think it was just to sell commercials. I think it came as a mandate from Fox. You have three acts so we can put more commercials in. And, and then uh, after 25 years of mastering that form, they go, now you have four acts. And they added an extra act. It's a little tag at the end just to put in a couple more commercials. Now, Aristotle said great drama has three acts, but Fox knows better than Aristotle. <laughs> so we have a lot more commercials. And as long as people hang in, we don't mind it because the show is two minutes shorter than it used to be. We used to fill 22 minutes a week, and now we only have to fill 20. Is and that in general across the board with, with primetime TV? I would say with primetime network TV. Yeah, it's 20 minutes as opposed to 22. But then now they're changing at both ends, too. They go, well, you're not going to have credit. You know, songs shows don't have theme songs anymore. That used to be the greatest part of TV, opening credit sequences, theme songs. Nobody has those because the networks believe... No one's going to sit through the same theme song every week. Taxi. Yeah. Mary Tyler Moore Show. Yeah. Chico and the Man. Yep. Everybody knows better. So so they're, they're, they're giving you more commercials in the middle and nothing at both ends. Isn't that strange? That's strange. So, so when you're coming up with, like, when you're deciding which episodes will be, you, you should write, the writer should write, how do you know, okay, this is an idea where we could fill this up with jokes? Like, is there something... You say, okay, Bart desperately wants something or Homer desperately needs something. So this will, just that premise will fill up lots of, will fill up the 20 minutes with jokes and he'll get his thing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. What you need is generally, and we, again, just the way we pitch jokes, uh, we want the premises to make us laugh. So very often at one of these retreats, John Swartzwelder, one of our legendary writers, would come in and just go, my episode is entitled, Bart gets an elephant, and we all go, okay, we get it. And then he would pitch a funny way. I mean, one thing The Simpsons does that a lot of shows that we invented, I think Sam Simon invented this, was the first act of the show, the first 10 minutes, has nothing to do with the rest of the show. You know, uh, there's an, uh, one episode starts off, Grandpa's very sick, he's going to die, though, so they go shopping for a gravestone, and... Then they realize the money they're spending on a gravestone could be used to build a tennis court. And that becomes our tennis episode. So the first 10 minutes is sick grandpa, and suddenly it's an episode about tennis. And you never see it coming. So everyone had to come in with a funny first act that would so tangentially and surprisingly lead to the premise of the rest of the episode. So, like, Bart gets an elephant. What was the first act there? Or what did he pitch as the first act? I think it was just a radio contest to get tickets to Krusty Land. I don't. I know the fans are going to know the episode much better than me, but I remember it was, uh, I think it was a crooked radio contest where the DJs are saying, and win this prize, and you'll either get two tickets to Krusty Land or an elephant. And it was supposed to be a gag prize nobody would cl- claim but Bart wanted the elephant, and then he got the elephant. And the great Schwarzwelder twist was the elephant was an asshole. <laughs> He's a, it's a really bad elephant. There's nothing cute about him. There's nothing charming about him. He's just this hateful animal they have to live with. And then 
find a way to get rid of. What's um when you say the word twist was did every episode require a twist? Well, they just we just wanted to surprise people. There there was a funny thing that used to happen, which was again, it was such a brand new structure to have an opening that had nothing to do with the rest of the show. So actors would come in to do walla. This means they would come in and make background noises and crowd noises for the animation. And they would show them the animation. You're doing crowd noises in this scene and this scene. And they would watch these very disparate scenes and go, wait a minute, you're making us do three different episodes for the price of one. And we go, no, this is one show. It's just taking a lot of crazy turns. Reminds me of uh, like Louie. Uh, a lot of those episodes, the first 10 minutes had nothing to do with the rest of the show. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I and, love and, that. and you mentioned in the book how one of the one of the great things uh, he did was make sure he had no um, notes from executives. Executives didn't even see the show before it aired in, in most cases. And I think you mentioned with The Simpsons, executives were not allowed on the set. Yes, the anyone, you can come, your daughter can come, watch us record The Simpsons. The president of Fox is not allowed in, has never been allowed in, doesn't know how it works. And it was... It was a very special deal. Jim Brooks, only James L. Brooks could make this kind of deal with the network to say, give us the money, let us make the show, and don't tell us how to do our jobs. Why do studio executives think they can give, like you're a team of, you know, comic writers that have worked on so many sitcom shows, Carson, many seasons of The Simpsons. Why do executives even think they have the right to give notes? They, I would guess it evolved. I don't, I don't want to say they're idiots, but I think it evolved naturally. When I started working in TV in like 1983, I was on an ABC sitcom, and there were like three executives running the whole network, and they would just go from show to show to show, literally to see if our people, are the writers drunk? Are they coked up? I mean, they were just sort of like police and just making sure everything was rolling along smoothly. So three running the whole network. And then I think cable came in, network audiences went down, the networks panicked and said, well, we better add more executives. We better help. And so they hired more and more executives. So uh, 20 years after my first job, I'm back at ABC trying to do a sitcom. Now, in the old days, three executives ran the whole network. 20 years later, I had 11 executives full-time on my TV show. The Critic? No, I wish. It Teen was Angel? Teen Angel. It was a show, 11 people telling me how to do my job. And I, you know, I had pretty good credits at this point, having done The Simpsons and The Critic. 11 people just meddling in the, in the creative process. And by the end of this process, a show came out every week, and I go, I hate this show. I go... I can't even watch this, and my name's on it three times. How can I expect the public to watch it? There's a story I tell in the book I love, which was a friend of mine was developing a sitcom, I think for Whoopi Goldberg. It was a very big star, was going to do a sitcom. And when you have a big star who wants to do TV, oh, these executives come out of the woodwork. So I'm I'm complaining about 11 executives. This guy, every move he made trying to develop this show, he had to consult with 45 network executives. Every time he changed the page of the script, he had to send out scripts to 45 executives. And this is no joke. I look at the list, and I'm looking at it, and I go, 
three of these people are dead. He goes, I know. And I said, and you still have to send the scripts to three dead people. And he says, yes. He's, I said, what do you think of that? He goes, I wish more of them were dead. So I want to I wanna reel back a little bit uh, to Carson, uh, who, you know, the king of late night, basically the, the, you know, not that he started the genre, but he really kind of, you know, brought it into every family's home. And and you were there in, during his, some of his last years. You were writing 60 jokes a day for his monologue. He would have 300 jokes all together and finally pick 12. How, first off, how do you write 60 jokes a day? Well, 50 of them are terrible. That's how you do it. It just, it would kill me on a daily basis that, that you know, I wish I could have crafted 15 good jokes, but no, I had a, a number I had to hit. And usually there were about 10 good ones and 50 stinkers, just formulaic jokes, kind of word soup where you just throw in a bunch of funny words like Pasadena and Pacoima and, uh, I don't know, uh, Geritol, whatever. You know, you, and you remember these kind of classic jokes from Carson that weren't jokes at all. It's just, oh, may Geritol go in your camel's hiney. And it was like, that's not a joke. Those are just words. So we would write these jokes, and there was no uh, guarantee that he'd pick the good ones. You know, we 300 jokes were generated. The head writer would narrow that down to 18 jokes. Of those, Carson would pick 12 of the 18, and usually four of them would suck. Four would bomb every night, and, you know, I'll bet there were better jokes in there. But, you know, it wasn't my job. My job was just to crank them out. And there's a story I love. I'll tell it in the I tell it in the book where we were doing Karnak. Is you know the yeah. most famous Carson bit. And again, I know one of the jokes I turned in just couldn't have been worse. I'm just trying to hit the quota. And the joke, which I won't even bother to explain for young people who don't get it, joke was red square, and the answer was what do you call that blotch on Gorbachev's head? Terrible joke, right? I actually laughed when I read it in the book. I okay. laughed out loud. Well, there you go. One in a row. So 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 this this joke somehow makes the cut and Johnny does it as Karnak, Red Square, blah blah blah. And it didn't just bomb. You know, the bomb is the audience not liking it. They just had no idea it was a joke. They didn't know they're sitting there still waiting for the punchline. And I go, oh, this is terrible. I thought, what is it they didn't know? They didn't know Red Square? I mean, they all knew at that time Gorbachev's Garbage watch. It just doesn't feel, it doesn't have the rhythm of a joke. What do you call that blotch on Gorbachev's head? Blah, 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 blah. It just, it just is hanging there. And it's sort of just, okay, he's got a red square on his head. So what? Oh, it's a birthmark. I don't know. It's not a great joke. So it it dies so badly, right? So six months later, Johnny's doing Karnak again. And through some horrible clerical error, they've given him the same joke, the red square joke. And he goes on, and I think, I'm doomed. I saw it on the cue cards. I go, this is the end of me. He, he does the joke, and it killed. It got this giant laugh. And I go, all right. You know, it was a moment I'll never forget where I just go, there's no science to this. You know, there's no rules of comedy.
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash 
James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so, and you mentioned that in the book, and I think you quote a bunch of books, you actually give very good book recommendations, which we'll talk about in a bit, but you basically say what you just said, there's no real rules to comedy, it's not something you could take a class to learn. I'm wondering though, like when I watch your, well, first off, when I read you, and then when I watch your interviews and talks that you've given, you have, you tell a lot of jokes in those talks and they're very classic joke structure. You'll yeah. use the rule of three where, you know, you'll say, I went to Harvard because of A, B, and then C will be something ridiculous. Or right. you'll use reversals or you use uh, the last line, the punchlines are always something you would never expect. Like, so you have your own formulas that you use. Over and over, yes. So like, what are some of those, the, the unex- and, and you were just describing the Simpsons scripts, the, the, the twists and the, you know, how can you say, answer a telephone in an unexpected way? It does seem like putting extra mental energy behind what's the unexpected that could happen here is important for a line to yeah. be funny. Yeah, the unexpected helps, but it's not enough. It's not, a, you know, you can't just go, and I open my drawer... And there was a shark in there. That's not a joke. It needs something more. And jokes are all so different. I have a theory on jokes, though. And I think I put it in the book, which is a book is almost, a joke is like a mystery story where there's a lot of weird elements. You go, what is all of this? It's just some weird world. And then the punchline comes and everything makes sense. And it may not be, Logical sense, but all the pieces come together. And the example I use is Duck walks into a pharmacy and says, I'd like some chapstick. And the druggist says, how will you pay for that? And he says, put it on my bill, right? Okay, now I get it. That's why he wanted chapstick. And, you know, there's so many unanswered questions in that joke. First of all, a duck doesn't have lips. Why does he need chapstick? And the druggist doesn't go, why is a duck talking? All he cares about is how is he going to pay for it? And then, but once you hear Bill, which again, it's not logical, it's a pun, you go, I get it. All right, the joke is finished. And a good joke, a working formula of a joke, when it's over, nobody goes, and then what happened? But you know, Red Square is that kind of joke. What do you call that blotch on Gorbachev's head? Yeah, and then what? <laughs> what do you mean? Why are you saying that? So not a good joke. So what? What's uh, I, I I'm just obsessed with the discipline you did of making sixty jokes a day for for Carson because <laughs> that must have built up all your discipline for the future writing on The Simpsons and so on. Again, you you would sit down. You had kind of like your basic tool chest of of what makes a joke. You had the the maybe the news headlines in front of you because he was somewhat topical, right? Although not political. Um, what would what would you start thinking about? We would certainly use, I'm embarrassed to say it, Al Jean and I, my writing partner, I don't think he's come up once, but 
I worked with him very closely for 16 years. Now he's my boss at yeah. The Simpsons. And you were showrunners together in, yeah. on those seasons? Yeah, he's my best friend in the world. He was my roommate in college, best man at my wedding. Yeah, a dear, dear friend. But we, again, it was just numbers. We would sit in the Carson office, and I think we had an actual list of funny words. And, you know, they would, you know, the Sizzler Steakhouse was funny. Kmart was funny. Things like that. Funny towns. I remember driving around in L.A., I would look at the freeway signs and go, oh, Azusa, that's a funny name. Pacoima, wow, I haven't heard that one. And so I think it was always at least a mental list of things that churn through, just funny words to get to. And it may have been at some points a literal list. Okay, what's our joke, you know, that deals with the Sizzler Steakhouse. And oh. then they would wear themselves out and you had to find new funny words. Like, I, I, I'm not, I don't mean to put you on the spot, mm -hmm. but like, let's say today, today you were writing jokes for a new Carson, you know, Jimmy Fallon or whoever. Yeah. Um, and the Melania Trump jacket, which was in the news a few days ago, uh, I forgot what it said. Uh, I don't care. Do you something like that? Right. She's going to see the uh, kids who are being detained. Uh, how would you take something like that and make a joke? Uh, I don't know. You're, put, you're putting, putting me you on, on the spot. spot. <laughs> I mean, this is the reason, you know, we had the discussion before we went on that you're saying I'm like a comedian. No, the difference between me and a comedian is. 45 seconds. You, If you ask that to a comedian, he'd come up with something. I would have to go, let's stop tape for a minute. I'll come back and give you something pretty good. So that's it. I am a writer, and I need a little time to think, and uh, I, I don't work under pressure. But I know we would. I would have to come up with 10 jokes about Melania Trump's jacket. So... Uh, that's it. And it's it's funny because when you watch your Harvard 25th reunion speech, it's it's basically that's what you did. You come up with all these jokes about Harvard and the reunion, even some inside jokes, which I start to piece together just because, uh, you know, the context. But and they all have they all have a very much a classic joke structure. I, I go to those structures. There's the kind of joke I love and I do a lot of them and they're not so easy, which is it's. The, the straightforward sentence, and then everything's turned around by the next phrase, and then everything's turned around by the next phrase. For example, I come out, when I give a speech, it always starts off, I only have one opening. I go, hiya, folks, we're going to have a lot of fun over the next six or seven hours. Twist, and then I go, that's just the joke. It won't be fun at all. So that's it. I love keeping the tagging a line with extra information that turns it around. What's another one? I want to. I want to steal all these. What's another one? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you're putting me on the spot again. I remember doing a joke about. Oh, this. Uh, this was a pretty successful play by Broadway standards. It only lost six million dollars the first week. So, all right, <laughs> they're all the same joke. <laughs> what was it? There was busted. one talk you gave. It might have even been the Harvard tour. It might have been a different one. Um, you had you compared um, something to phone sex versus real sex. Oh, that's a good and joke. And then you had the next line, which was very funny. And then, so what, what, what was that? Oh, one? that's a joke. Uh, I say uh, it's the, it's right on top. I say I am a comedian. Uh, I am a comedy writer, not a comedian. It's the difference. It's like the difference between phone sex and real sex. You know the difference between phone sex and real sex. 
One is just a hollow, empty, degrading experience. And the other one really runs up your phone bill. And then in my case, it's $20 for four minutes either way. <laughs> so that's it. The joke is that, you know, you can always go a little further. So it's like reversals and the unexpected and, you know. So we are this close to having a, a computer program that can do what I do. And I'm afraid it's only going to be like five lines of code. I don't know. That, even that like seems uh, it's, it's hard to come up with. It's not so easy. <laughs> the simpler it is, the harder it is to come up with. It's like the Mark Twain expression. Um, I would have made this letter shorter, but I didn't have enough time. Right. So great line too. He's. I mean, he could have worked in like he could have written for Colbert. He had a lot of great one line. And in fact, he's he's like me. We're talking about. I'm not sure if we gave any background on this. The fact that I I lecture all over the world on The Simpsons and. You were saying it's a one-hour speech. I stand behind a podium. I have notes, but it's just stand-up. It's just a lot of these jokes I've been telling today. And the podium makes all the difference. If I came out as a stand-up, they go, well, this is a pretty half-assed stand-up. But the audience has always go, well, this is funny for a lecture. Wow, there's a lot of jokes in this lecture. And it's great to lower expectations that way. And Mark Twain did just that. He 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 went bankrupt. He was a wonderful writer, so prolific. He lost all his money and in bad investments and went on the lecture tour. And, well, Hal Holbrook went on for years doing Mark Twain because it was stand-up. He's really, really funny. And the guy could write a one-liner. Well, well, you know, you... You, you say it's you, when you give these talks, it's not stand up, even though it's. It, it's I'm standing it, up. It's, yeah. <laughs> you're standing up and you're and you're telling jokes one after the other. Now about a topic like The Simpsons, and sometimes you veer into a tangent, but always bring it back. But I don't know why do you think if you did those jokes on a stand up stage, it wouldn't work? They're funny jokes. Uh, they might work. They might work. I don't know. There's a comfort level, and again, I just I really think the podium lowers expectations. So. Things are a little funny. It's like, uh, you know, professors are always getting laughs with jokes that an actual comedian would never get laughs with. Or improv. I, I got to say, I hate improv, and it's everywhere. And I, I've never seen, I've seen, I've laughed at improv shows. I've been impressed, but I go, if you put this on and said, this is a scripted show, no one would laugh because... Improv is only funny because, wow, they came up with that so fast. Oh, they came up with that on the spot. I don't think it's ever funny on its own. Given all your experience writing sitcoms and The, and the Simpsons and, and what you just said about improv, what do you think about a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is just basically a list of notes and then improv in between? Well, that's that's almost a trick. It shows you what drudgery writing is, is that Larry David does everything but type up a script and he you know he works out these beautiful stories I've, I've heard they're very dense scripts of story beats and if if they just recorded the first thing anybody said that would be improv that would be like going mm. to an improv club but what they do is they run the scene if something's funny they go okay let's do another take make sure you say that line and they'll do it again and now they have two funny lines or three funny lines and really that's just writing. I mean, that's what we do in a writer's room. We just keep throwing out lines till we find something that sticks. It's just another kind of writing, but that's that is not improv. It's a writing process. So if someone, let's say you're you were, you know, showrunner for The Simpsons, if someone was pitching you to be 
a writer on the show, what would you, I mean, you mentioned a little bit, they would write spec scripts and pitch them. You read seven or 800 spec scripts, but what would really impress you? What would you say? What, what would make you say, man, I have to have this guy writing for my show? It would be- Or a woman writing for my show. Yes, oh, very good. Nice catch. A woman or man of any color <laughs> or sexual orientation. You want them on your show. Yes, I want them. <laughs> so uh, the script had to be a bunch of things. And I would only, I would hire people just on the script. I wouldn't meet them. And so it would be a surprise. Someone would come in, I go, oh, how about that? You're you're an old Asian man or you're two young women. I just, because you don't look at this title page or even if you did, uh, you're, you've forgotten it by the time you get to the script. So it was really blind hiring uh, to find people that way. But the script had to be funny on the first page and very important. It had to be funny by the end. There was, I read so many scripts that just lost it in the last four or five pages. And I go, oh, you are not a closer. You are not a fan. You have sloppy work habits. It had to be, the spelling had to be right. There had to be, it had to be cleanly typed. I want a hard worker too. But mostly, you know, again, so it had to be funny all the way through, but you had to surprise me with the story. You had to pitch a story. And again, we never hire anyone at Simpsons off of a Simpsons spec script. In my day, I read, when I read 800 scripts a year, I read 400 Seinfelds and 300 Cheerses. And uh, it had to be a premise that I go, wow, I never thought of that. That's really clever. But it also had to fit the show. You know, I always, I wanted it always to be doable and believable. What, what would be like an example of one that won you over? Um, there was a really good one. I hired these guys and they wound up replacing me at The Simpsons. These guys, Oakley and Weinstein, wrote a script. It was a... Uh, it uh, it was a Seinfeld episode where they go to a murder mystery party, I think it was. And George Costanza is there. He's drinking wine. And I think he bites down on the wine glass and swallows a piece of glass. And so everyone's there going, will the glass pass through him safely or will he get sick and start coughing up blood? So everyone stays at the party for eight hours waiting for George to poop. And it's... It's just the most, you know, they talk about cringe comedy. What could be more embarrassing than you've wrecked a party and everyone's staying there just waiting for you to go to the bathroom? And it was just funny. And wow, you know, not the first idea that would occur to anyone. I don't know how they came up with it. And then you mentioned, or not you, you didn't mention, but Judd Apatow in the forward mentions how he sent you a spec script, I guess, for The Simpsons. Yeah. And then you ended up hiring him for The Critic. Yes. Judd Apatow, of course, has made a trillion super funny movies, um, plus wrote this great book, which you mentioned, Sick in the Head. Yeah. Uh, best book on comedy. Uh, what was his spec script like? His spec, it was a really good idea. And I don't remember it well, but I know, it, I think, oh, I remember. It, the script came in too late. We had already made our last hire for the year. And then I'm reading Judd's script. And... It was a, it was, you know, it was funny. The guy can write jokes and lots of jokes. I mean, it's one reason I love his movies. You go there and you see a lot of jokes and you remember 10 or 20 years before, you would see these Chevy Chase movies and be long stretches where nothing was funny. 
There would be really lame bits. Richard Pryor, a lot of comedians were just phoning it in and taking paychecks for years. And then here's a Judd Apatow movie, joke, 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 joke. Um, but his premise was pretty good that Homer, I think, is hypnotized at a nightclub and they make him into, make him think he's a 10-year-old boy. And then the hypnotist has a heart attack. And so Homer is stuck being a 10-year-old boy. So kind of a funny comedy premise. But what made it great was now Bart suddenly has a brother. He's got a 10-year-old boy in the house instead of his antagonistic father. He's got another 10-year-old kid to hang around with. And it's so sweet and heartwarming and just sort of, it has that great observation. Oh, Bart doesn't have a brother. Well, you know, Lisa has a sister. It's cla and classic Judd Apatow, too. The, 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 the brother, the, 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 uh, the bromance type yeah, of movie. Yeah, bromance, exactly. <laughs> so it's... It's much. It was a much better script than you might think. Hearing the premise, and he takes it uh, in emotional ways, which is really nice. And then a very sad ending where they they find the hypnotist. He comes out of a coma, and he's going to bring Homer back to being a thirty nine year old man. And Bart's going to lose his brother. That's sort of touching. That's sort of heartbreaking to see. So, so one level further, if someone was pitching you let's say you were at a network or or a tv company and <laughs> oh, God, so, someone me. was pitching you a show what would you what would you look for a I sitcom would, show that uh thank god i just don't do that anymore i can't bear the process because you would pitch shows yeah i pitch shows you know we talked about teen angel and teen angel i had to deal with disney disney television and Al Jean and I were, this was a thing back in the day, back in the 90s, I guess there was a thing called a development deal. They'd pay you a lot of money just to generate sitcom ideas. And if they liked an idea, they would turn it into a sitcom. And every kind of prestigious writer had one of these deals. And nothing good came out of any of them. But so, And a lot of people would just take the deal and they knew it was a dead end. And they just go golfing. So, But Al and I are hard workers, and every week we'd go to Disney. Here's our five new ideas for sitcoms. And they just go, no, no, no. And we'd be back the next week, five more. And we could see Disney was getting sick of seeing us. And it's like, but this is our job. This is what you're paying us to do. So finally, we're coming to the end of a three-year deal. Nothing has worked. Nothing has stuck. Do you so feel, do, at the end of those three years where nothing has been happening and given your success with such an iconic almost brand now like the Simpsons I mean there's Simpsons you know lingerie practice like right, every right. product really branded Simpsons did you feel did you start to feel irrelevant or what was what was like a low moment during those three years I feel like the low moment must have happened the low moment happened the day we got some picked up which was Al and I finally go all right let's the creative approach is not working. Let's try the hack approach. And the hack approach was, let's take two different hit shows and combine them into something new. So at the time, the two hits on the air that especially young people liked were Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And Nell Scovell. Nell Scovell. Has been, she's been on has the she podcast. she been in here? Of course. Yeah. Everywhere I go, <laughs> Nell has been warming my seat. Because her book came out just a month before yours. Yeah, <laughs> and it was very funny. We didn't, we're very good friends. We didn't know we were each writing a book, and we're they're not only coming out from the same publisher, it's the same tiny imprint put out both books. So that was it. She was there three months ahead of me, and uh, 
I'm just following in her wake now. But so she had made Sabrina the Teenage Witch. It was a new hit show. And the other hit that was had just come on was Beavis and Butthead. So we go into Disney. Here's our hack pitch. How about Sabrina the Teenage Witch mixed with Beavis and Butthead? And they go, we love it, except for the Beavis and Butthead. So we said, so you just want Sabrina? They go, yeah. So that was it. That was Teen Angel. It became sort of, it was like a, a male Sabrina. Yeah, a male Sabrina. And instead of a witch, he was a bad angel. And, you know, it was sort of doomed from there on in. It was just sort of, just sort of a but lame. But I kind of like that premise. Yeah. Well, we <laughs> tried our best. We had really good writers. We had an amazing team of young writers that you could never reassemble. They've gone on to do much better things. They've gone, they went off, after doing this terrible show, they went off and did Frasier and Psych and uh, some came to The Simpsons and some went to Family Guy. It was, uh, so it wasn't the writing, but I, I, it's a good lesson you can learn in TV, which is good writing can never overcome a crappy premise. The premise is everything. And Roseanne was a great example. The old Roseanne. And everyone knew the stories of Roseanne. She would fire the writers every year. She was it was a miserable place. She would hire comedians who'd never written anything, and that would be her staff. And yet that show was great year after year for at least six years because the premise was so strong. The actors, the characters were what, so good. What would you say is the premise of Roseanne? Uh it was just it was just a good, realistic look at a blue-collar family. That was it. It was just something you hadn't quite seen before. You know, maybe all in the family. But it was funny to see blue-collar family treated with dignity. They were not educated people, but they were very smart people, which I really loved. Roseanne and Ta and Dan were both very bright people making bright remarks. They just They just didn't go to college. So that was that was a great show. And mind you, so did, Roseanne is on the show. This is the gold standard of TV. It was the number one show on TV. And I'm going to Disney, and I go, well, we want to pitch a show about blah, blah, blah. And they go, no, nobody wants to see. Uh, no, they said, people only want to see attractive people on sitcoms. So this won't work. I go, <laughs> Roseanne and Dan, you know, this is this is an elephant married to a hippopotamus that... They just didn't buy. They didn't know. It was their own network, too. It's like, it's the number one show on your network. They're not attractive. How can you say something like that? And very, another one we would run up against, they'd say, we would say, oh, we want to do, oh, this kills me. It just now occurred to me. We said, we want to do a show about a, a think tank with a bunch of geniuses all living together in, a, in an apartment. And they said, nobody wants to see smart people on TV. Now, Frasier was like the number two show on TV. Big Bang Theory. But that was, it was Big Bang Theory. It didn't hit me till this second. We had gone in 10 years before and pitched Big Bang Theory, and they turned it down. So, so it sort of shows nobody really knows what they're doing. And I kind of find that across every industry. Yes, yeah. It's a, uh, like economics or, I don't know, every industry, basically. There was a chalkboard Al Jean pitched for uh, The Simpsons. Bart's writing on the chalkboard. Every business is exactly like show business. So as opposed to there's no business like show business. So yes, everybody puts up with this nonsense. But it was it's what made network TV so hard was people, 
people telling you how to do your jobs. And this is why TV's great now. This is why Netflix is so great and HBO is great. Every once in a while, I need to write a joke about a bad TV show like My Mother, the Car. And there's no modern reference. There are no bad TV shows anymore. You can't think of one that everyone goes, oh, that stinks. And uh, That's because they get canceled so fast. They don't really get in the <laughs> well, cultural memory. Good. Yeah. And there's just so much good TV. And why? It's because the Netflix model, the HBO model is, let's bring in people we respect. If we like their idea, we sit back and let them make their show. How simple is that? And I guess HBO kind of had this guiding, you know, Chris Albrecht was head of original programming. He started off as a stand-up comedian. Mm. So he sort of respected the comedy process. And then he, you know, HBO, we were talking about hotspots earlier, like how The Simpsons incubated all this talent. HBO incubated a lot of executive talent that ended up at the other networks in charge of their original programming. How about that? And mind you, too, there's no, you know, Harvard and the Harvard Lampoon has produced so many great comedy writers. There's nothing inherently funny about Harvard. It's one of the most dismal places in the world. It's, you just need an entry. You need a point of access. Generally, you need someone to get in to open the door to his friends and his colleagues. So there's a Minneapolis mafia too. And there's just a lot of people, someone broke Is that in. Is the Onion was there? Uh, Did you have Megan Amron on The Simpsons, right? Yes, Megan was there. That was in Madison, Wisconsin. But yeah, there's a Madison, Wisconsin <laughs> mafia too. And it, it shows you no place is funnier than the other. It's just sort of, if you give people a place to be funny, the funny people will come there. And if one of them makes it in Hollywood, he'll, he can recommend his friends. So so one thing that was that The Simpsons sort of defined, and again, many animated shows later sort of took up this formula, you're able to parody everything. Right. <laughs> like you, you can't do, you can't like parody Star Wars with the Brady Bunch, for instance, but you could parody Star Wars with every single animated show out there. Correct. You know, I'm just using that as a, a broad example, but uh, I don't I don't think The Simpsons ever parodied it. I, I, I know Family oh, Guy. Oh, Star Wars? No, we've done it to bits. I'm oh, afraid. okay. We've done it, and Family Guy has just made a they little made a franchise of it. Yeah. They just did, they did part one was a full episode, part two. They've done three one-hour episode parodies of different Star Wars movies. There's, it's a rich area. Yeah, so so like, how would you would you approach a parody different than other scripts? Like, you would kind of have to staple yourself to different elements of of you know the original you know thing you're you're parodying. With parody, you know, well, it's funny. Uh, I was about, I'm going to contradict what was in my head, so I should just shut my mouth and say <laughs> the second thing that came to me, which is. You parody sometimes what you want to parody, what you know and understand. For example, on The Simpsons, we've done 50 parodies of Citizen Kane. I think you could assemble Citizen Kane with our parodies. We've done every scene in it. And uh, and yet we don't expect the kids in the audience to know Citizen Kane. They haven't seen the movie. And now, you know, even college students don't see Citizen Kane. Right. It's an 80-year-old black-and-white movie. They don't know that movie. Uh, but we do it anyhow, and the kids like it anyhow. The kids like it because they know something's going on here that I'm not getting. And I remember that as a kid watching Rocky and Bullwinkle. Rocky and Bullwinkle, when I was a little kid, when you were a kid, that was our Simpsons. You would watch it, and 
some of the a lot of the jokes were going over your head, but you had a nice sense. Oh, they're not talking down to me. This is not a dumb kid show. Well, I think part of the idea is like take Citizen Kane as a great example. As you say, it's been around for eighty years. So I'm sure plenty of movies were made eighty that year, eighty years ago. Citizen Kane's the only one we can remember off the top of our heads. So it's sort of withstood the test of time, which means even if you don't remember Citizen Kane, the premise and and the scenes and the emotions of it resonate somehow primally. Right. Yeah, there's certainly, I, I just don't ask me to name them, but there are certainly a lot of big successful movies that don't get parodied because there's nothing solid, you know, to sink your, sink, sink your teeth into, to make fun of. You know, they're perfectly great movies. You know, uh, Terms of Endearment, classic movie, won the Oscar, or Spotlight. Let's say Spotlight, Oscar-winning, best picture, great movie. How would you parody it? What's that memorable scene or image? So, you know, you can make fun of superhero movies. You know, it's easier to make fun of Thor than Spotlight. That's funny. So so the other thing you did a lot of, which I, it seems like there's a lot of techniques to kind of um, – get viewers invested, like let's say a, a parody show or a guest star show. So you had a lot of famous celebrities on the show. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just as a side question, you've had every celebrity, but I'm particularly intrigued. You had Thomas Pynchon, yeah. who was famously very J.D. Salinger-like. No one had, no one even saw a, a, what a photo of him looked like. So, so to, to put it in context, he was a uh, genius author, wrote, Gravity's Rainbow and V and a bunch of other books, and then totally disappeared. Right. And I think it was the National Book Award. He, he wins it and sends a fake version of himself to he pick up the Professor award. He Professor Irwin Corey to accept for him, which is hilarious. And oh, I, I don't even know who that is. You don't know Professor no. Irwin Corey? Oh, he was a famous comedian in the 60s and 70s where he would come out as a crazy professor. And he, was, he just died at like age 107 and... Very funny comedian because I've seen him. He would go out and just wing it, just talk nonsense. It was just double talk and nonsense, and it sounded erudite, but it didn't make any sense. But occasionally there'd be jokes in there. He was real one of a kind performer. So that's that's who Thomas Pynchon sent to accept his National Book Award. So how did you? Because because in a in a prior life, I even asked. Thomas Pynchon to do. I used to work at HBO. I asked Thomas Pynchon to do something. He said no. Yeah. How did you, of course, The Simpsons was much more iconic than whatever I was doing. But uh, how did you get Thomas Pynchon to say yes to the first thing he ever said yes to? I'm almost certain he came to us. I think he came to us because even though he's one of the most celebrated authors in the world, I think his kids didn't know who he was. So he because he had young kids, and he goes, "If I go on The Simpsons, that'll impress them." So. I, this is the version I heard. I was I was not around for it, but so he calls up. I want to do the Simpsons, and they said, "Okay, how do you want us to draw you? Nobody knows how you look." He said, "Put a bag on my head," and that was the character. And uh, they wrote a part for him, and they flew to New York to record him, and they loved everybody. Loved him. I wasn't on that trip. Uh, what they was, love about him? He was just nice. Just guy. nice. He was. I well, I think I can. I'm going to even name the guy because he's dead. It was. They recorded Thomas Pynchon and I think Tom Clancy in the same day, and nobody liked Tom Clancy, and everyone just loved this genial, funny Thomas Pynchon. So um, they recorded him, 
We go back to L.A., we do the show, and Thomas Pynchon calls back, says, I want to do it again. And so we wrote him another part, flew to New York, and he wrote jokes for the episode. He punched up our script. They were funny? Honor. Yeah, they were They were amazing. They were the kind of jokes you'd never submit to him because he, he said, I'm, I'm Thomas Pynchon, I'm turning all my, my famous novels into cookbooks, and there's like the frying of latke 49. Something like that. It was great, weird, punny jokes that he wrote for the show. And, and so you get all these guest stars because obviously they have this not only this star presence, but name recognition and they have acting skills. So you know that even if they're not voice actors, they're still going to have some presence and power with their voice. Um, what, and this is sort of a naive question, but what what makes a star? Like you saw all these guest stars and, and, and they're still stars, even though they're kind of hidden by the layer of animation, but there's still, their star power still comes through. What, what, what makes someone a star? Oh, that's, that's, that's way out of my field. The one thing I, I'll tell you though, which, uh, you, you probably never occurred to you is our audience is much bigger overseas than in America. You know, we've got America and they love us in English-speaking countries, and Britain loves the show. Nobody loves us more than Australians. But most of the world sees the show dubbed. So even though we got Mick Jagger or Tony Blair, they're just seeing some local actor dubbing it into Spanish. And I visited these countries, and they have no idea we have big celebrities on the show. They have no idea we got the actual people because they don't get to hear them. So I think it's more, it's a gimmick of the show. Very often... We use it as a toy. We go, who do we want to meet? And we'll go, all right, let's write them into the script. And uh, the the classic example is the one where Homer goes into space, right? Homer becomes an astronaut. So we get Buzz Aldrin for the episode. Makes sense. But we we also got James Taylor. He's in that episode too. Why? Ah, we wanted to meet James Taylor. And he came in. He was a great sport. And he became a friend of the show. Do you find that most of these guest stars were actually very friendly and nice and wonderful? I can say I I probably shouldn't have done it. Uh, out of eight hundred guest stars, there's three people didn't like. I named one of them, uh, and then the other one was a famous comedic actor that just nobody really went for, and an athlete. So three out of eight hundred very famous people were difficult. The rest of them love it. It's you know, they don't even have to come in. It takes 10 minutes to record a Simpsons role. We'll come to your house to do it. Now we can do it over satellite phones. Uh, we recorded Magic Johnson in his car. So you'd and the have audio to, quality was fine for TV? Fine. Fine. Yeah, nobody ever noticed. So you'd have to be a real or super prima donna to complain about your treatment on The Simpsons because it's 10 minutes of your time anytime you want to do it, from anywhere you want to do it. You don't even have to put on clothes to do it. So they love it. But most of them, I would say 95% of them, come into the studio because they're excited too. They want to see the voices of Homer and Bart and Lisa and Maggie and Marge. So, look, you've, you, you, you've written this book, Springfield Confidential. I'm going to read the subtitle. I always forget the subtitle. Springfield Confidential. Jokes, Secrets, and Outright Lies from a Lifetime Writing for the Simpsons. Mike Reese with your co-author, Matthew Clickstein, forward by Judd Apatow. Uh, what's next for you? Um, 
I, oh, and I should mention, I mentioned earlier, but 17 children's books, like you're huge children's book writer. Yep. And uh, I have another children's book coming out in about a year, about a turtle and a tortoise. Uh, I have two plays. This is the newest thing. You know, the book was this strange detour that just came to me. And, you know, I've only got one life, so I've only got one memoir in me. Uh, but I've been writing plays, which I really love, just because for good or for ill, the writer is in complete control of the play. And I've had a little luck, and I have two plays uh, that we'll be playing this summer. I like to say they're off-Broadway, and they're, they're, they're way off-Broadway. One's in Colorado, and one's in Utah. But that's the newest thing that keeps me entertained. And I, I, I must enjoy it, because there's no pay in it at all. So it's just a lot of fun. And, and is that, do you keep yourself, I mean, obviously you've done well with The Simpsons and, and all of your projects. Does that keep you motivated, like new types of writing projects, hitting new genres that you haven't hit before? I'm, I'm very lucky in that the Sim, I work one day a week at The Simpsons now. I live in New York and I still fly to LA every Wednesday. I work one day as a consultant. And that's my choice because I don't think I have two days of Simpsons creativity left in me every week. You know, I've been doing it a long time. I love to go in there. Uh, but the rest of the time I go, I don't have to do anything if I don't want to. I've worked a long time and I saved my money. And so now anything I do, I do it just because it tickles me because it's fun. And no one can make me do what I don't want to do, which is, you know, that was the lesson I learned from Teen Angel. It's just I can't go through that anymore. And well, it sounds like that's the lesson you learned from The Simpsons because you guys wrote those shows just to make yourselves laugh. Yeah. Not knowing at all. It, it, it's this whole idea of the process was more important than the outcome. You fo you guys focus very much on the process because you had no idea whether the show would even last. Exactly. There was a an interesting time for years TV just had three networks and as a result, there weren't that many sitcom writer jobs. I'll put a number on. Let's say there were 200 people working in sitcoms on three networks. And then suddenly it expanded. There were six networks. And so suddenly a lot of people poured into the business who had no business being sitcom writers. They were going because, oh, there's job openings and here's money to be made. And a lot of there were a lot of guys I know quit business school to become sitcom writers. So... Uh, they all move in on this gold rush. And then the business shrank again because reality TV came in and uh, quiz shows, you know, who wants to be a millionaire came in. And suddenly there weren't a bunch of sitcom jobs anymore. And all those guys who came in just for the money, just for the career, were the first guys to get fired because it wasn't what they were born to do. It, did, it wasn't their passion. It was just a job to them. And the people who stay and keep working in TV, it's partly, this is what we were born for. There's something terribly, terribly wrong with us that we just make jokes all the time and we're not good for anything else whatsoever. Now there must be tens of thousands of jobs between Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. I mean, do you think there's a, a glut now of shows out there? No. Uh, part of it is, even though there's a lot of shows, they're not doing full seasons. They're doing... 10 episodes in two years. So I don't think there's that many more writers working to fill those jobs. And I see 
the same six or seven writers are just jumping around. They'll work on Veep, and then they'll go to Silicon Valley when Veep is done. So uh, there is a glut. I feel bad that every once in a while you see a really great show, and there's just too much stuff out there, and nobody gets around to it. I'll give you an example, which was, I think FX had a show called The Comedians, and it starred Billy Crystal and Josh Gad. Oh, excellent show. Excellent show. You know what? The first, the pilot was bad. It, everyone agreed the pilot was not good, and so people watched the first one and bailed, and then it got so great, but it's too late, too competitive out there. Nobody stuck around for the next 10 episodes, and you know, it's Josh Gad and Billy Crystal doing a sitcom. It was a wonderful show. Well, Mike Reese, Springf author of Springfield Confidential, excellent book. I like how you, we didn't get fully into it, but you you outlined the whole process from beginning to end, the 30 steps and nine months it takes to make a Simpsons show. You have so many fun stories to tell about your, your time there and your other experiences. Uh, excellent book for anybody I don't know, interested in media or entertainment or The Simpsons or anything. It's just a, 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 a your life is makes a good story. Oh, thank you. And uh, <laughs> I left out the boring part. I, I also particularly like your book recommendations. Like I like Poking the Dead Frog uh, by Mike Sachs and Judd Apatow's book. And there, I think there was another, you had listed five books. There was another book that I really enjoyed. I, I forget which one. There, I think I can remember it was Born Standing Up by oh, Steve that's Martin. A great classic book. Amazing book. And then a book, Two memoirs, one by Norman Lear and one by Gary Marshall. Just fantastic. I, I like to think they're like this book, which is they're just telling the history and the insider look at the business, but they're comedy writers, so the book is funny, and they're making comedy, so the stories are funny too. They're funny histories of funny things that happened on funny shows. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Couldn't be, couldn't be more of a pleasure. I'll say this too. If you're too cheap to buy the book, you should buy the book. If you're too cheap to buy Springfield Confidential, you can at least follow me on Twitter at Mike Reese Writer. I give you one free joke a day, one good joke a day, just like the Jimmy Fallon show. Do you, do you write it from scratch that day? I work so hard. I'll put like three hours work into some dumb tweet that goes up there. And uh, just and it's a hobby, you know? There's There's nothing more to it than just... I want to make a good joke. And it's what I said earlier about Karnak, which is uh, sometimes I go, what a great joke I get. I've gotten here. And I, I always move my chair back from the computer. I think it's going to be such a popular joke. The, the likes will come pouring out. And then nobody really goes for it. And it's a wake-up call and a reminder, wow, I still, after all these years, I still don't know what exactly is going to make people laugh. That's, that's interesting. All right, well, thanks again. Springfield Confidential by Mike Reese. Thank you. Wow, that was fun.